Ghost, if you get me. There we are. Good. Good morning. Hey, um, there are lots of you here that I haven't met, uh, which is interesting. Uh, I'm Mark. Uh, I am not on staff here, uh, but Brian is away, and Alex is leading worship, and every once in a while I get to, uh, to jump in and pinch hit. And it seems, when I hear from Brian, <laughs> that there's something that's going to be a really hard conversation for us to have, and he needs to be away <laughs> over and over. So if we haven't met, but you've heard me preach before... Um, you might think I'm a real jerk at this point. Like, that's, let's just be honest. Uh, so we're continuing at Second Peter, um, this series. And last week, Brian preached uh, at the beginning of Second of, uh, Peter chapter 2. So you want to get your Bibles in the head there. Um, and, and I don't know if you, uh, if you were here or if you caught the message online. Um, what I got was uh, false teachers, bad doctrine, eternal damnation, and now Mark. Uh, so I feel very, very, very humbled to be here with you this morning. So what we're going to do, um, I'm a teacher, and so, uh, you know, my, my fallback is always like uh, sort of going into that mode. And so we're going to read the text, and we're going to have a discussion here in, in three parts, uh, and you will see exactly where we are uh, as our slides go by. Um, and we're going to have uh, a whole lot of just kind of information and then we're going to have a hard conversation. So just so we all are like together in this, if that's helpful. Uh, so let's, uh, let's read the text here together. Second Peter 2, uh, recapping 1 through 3 from last week. But there were also false prophets in Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the master who bought them. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. Many will follow their evil teaching and shameful immorality. And because of these teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. In their greed, they will make up clever lies to get hold of your money. But God condemned them long ago, and their destruction will not be delayed." For God did not spare even the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell in gloomy pits of darkness where they are being held until the day of judgment. And God did not spare the ancient world except for Noah and the seven others in his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. So God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. Later, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and turned them into heaps of ashes. He made them an example of what will happen to ungodly people. But God also rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. Yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. So you see, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials, even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. He's especially hard on those who follow their own twisted sexual desire and despise authority. And now none of you want to invite me to lunch, right? Let's keep this open because we're going we're gonna to have a lot of texts that we're going to reference and look at, but we're going to keep coming back to here, right? So don't let this go. If you got one of these little... This probably has a name. Alex, do they teach you in seminary what this is called? 
Okay, fine. It's a bookmark. Um, it should have a holy name of some kind, I guess. Uh, the Ribbon of Justice. Let's keep the Ribbon of Justice in Second Peter 2, because we're going to need to come back to it. Uh, this is a very tiny little stand. Okay, so we're going to do a quick recap of false teachers, um, verses 1 through 3. Uh, and also, you know, as I listened to, to Brian's message and my family listened to Brian's message, there were kind of five questions that came up for me. Uh, so let's look at, at five questions together, okay? Five questions from verses one through three. Question one, how do I know a false teacher? This seems like a very important question in the light of the scripture that we just read. Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20, Jesus warns of false prophets then, and he suggests that we will know them by their fruit, right? So, so if you want to know if somebody is, uh, is, is truthful in representing God, you'll see it manifest in their lives, or if they're not, you'll see something else manifest in their lives. So Jesus himself suggests you're going to know by their fruit, these, uh, these teachers, whether they are authentic teachers of God or if they are false teachers. Peter suggests uh, that we look at motives, and he suggests uh, a greed and an appetite for depraved conduct. Uh, and every once in a while, when I, when I look at, at Scripture, I like to look at, uh, at other, um, other translations. And in this case, I happen to pull up the King James Version, which is always fun because it feels like it was like written by Yoda sometimes. Um, and so it just sort of forces you to engage in a different way. But this is what he says. He says, through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. I like that. Through covetousness, that is jealous selfishness, shall they with feigned words, falsehoods, make merchandise of you. So what they're selling isn't necessarily the false teaching. What they're selling is you. Okay, so in that light, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to suggest some red flags. Okay, so now we have looked at Scripture, and I want to be really, really, really careful this morning when we are saying, the Bible says this, and then because I read these things, Mark thinks this. Right? So I'm just going like, to step away here. I want to suggest some red flags. I'm not suggesting that this is a black and white litmus test, but some red flags that maybe kind of get your like, false teacher radar going off. Here it is. When someone uses the name of God the church, the scriptures, or your faith. Okay, that's our first half. When someone uses the name of God, the church, the scriptures, or your faith to get your money, your body, your vote, to gain power over you, to convince you to commit or overlook sinful acts. That's my red flag. Okay, so let's, let's hit that again. Here's my red flag. When someone uses the name of God, the church, the scriptures, or your faith, to get your money, your body, your vote, or to gain power over you and your faith, to convince you to commit or overlook sinful acts. And again, this is not gonna be real cut and dry. This sounds simple, 
but we've all walked through this world for a bit, and we know how hard that can be. So keep your radar up and watch for red flags. Question two, how do I know false teaching? I wanted to mark a little bit false teachers, people, and false teaching, because that can get, that can get really squirrely on us. Uh, so false teaching. Uh, here's number one. My gosh, know your Bible. Yeah? Inside and out. Learn the arc of Scripture. If somebody says, you know, the Bible says that you owe me 50 bucks, right? If you've never read the Bible, you might be like, well, maybe I do owe him 50 bucks, right? Right? Know your Bible inside and out. Learn the arc of Scripture. There is a big narrative of what God is doing with his creation here. And if we don't really get it, if we don't really know it, uh, we're going to be in trouble. So that's first. Uh, More specifically, understand the gospel, the good news that is championed by the New Testament apostolic writers. And specifically, I would say, go study Galatians. If you're in the women's Bible study that meets on Monday nights instead of watching football, um, good for you, awesome. Um, I wasn't invited, so I get, I get to watch football, I guess. Um, no Galatians. Galatians comes out and says, we got this thing, we got the gospel, we got the good news, and I am so, so upset that you're abandoning that. Right, so, so go study Galatians. Good on you, women, uh, for studying Galatians. Guys, let's catch up. Um, the gospel of Jesus Christ is prime and can't be changed. And so we both, what Galatians will tell us is we both have to be careful about elevating other things to the level of gospel, and we have to be careful about watering down or changing the gospel and reducing it. We have to keep it prime and whole and intact. And when somebody comes along and their teaching causes you to like start elevating like, we gotta have drums in church because of Jesus and that's the same, right? That's salvation. Like there's a problem there with that, with that teaching, right? Because it's, it's diminishing the power and the truth of the gospel by trying to tag some other stuff on with it. All right, next, uh, learn the Apostles' Creed. Know about that. How many of you know the Apostles' Creed? Let's start with this. How many of you know of it? Yeah? We have a song that's kind of based on it called I Believe that we do here once in a while. It's based on that. Uh, the Apostles' Creed was, uh, was the early church father's attempt to get at this, to say, like, listen, this is what's really true and prime if we're going to be followers of Jesus. So we got we to understand that. we got to understand that the God who created all things, including you, came to be with us, was born of a virgin, and died for our sin because we are broken. And he was raised on the third day so that we can be saved, so that we can be reunited with the God who created us. Like, we got to get at this, uh, this kernel of the gospel. And then things get more complicated, right, after that. Otherwise, there wouldn't be 120,000 denominations in the world, right? Okay, next question. Where can we just disagree and how do we draw boundaries? That's a great question. I would refer you back to the gospel, Our apostolic writers keep coming back to the gospel, come back to the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Now, there are things that we can discuss and wrestle with and disagree about that that mean you don't get a seat at the table of my developing faith anymore. And that's when you cross the line of compromising the gospel in some way. You no longer get to sit at my table and, and pour into my faith. 
It doesn't mean I don't love you. It doesn't mean we can't be friends. It doesn't mean we can't have other aspects of life that we do together. It doesn't mean that, that I don't care about you. It just means that I have to draw a boundary because you've stepped outside of the gospel as the fundamental truth for all other truth, okay? There are other things that we're gonna wrestle about and we're gonna wrestle passionately about because we think it's really important and we're gonna disagree and that has a different kind of boundary attached to it. Some of those are just gonna be practical, right? So the Amish decided, oh my gosh, technology corrupts. They have a point, right? I'm not gonna argue that with them. Um, and yet, if I said, hey, Alex, listen, uh, this morning, let's not use any technology. Let's turn off the lights and heat. Sorry about the guitar you built. It's really awesome, but we're not gonna do that, right? Like, in some ways, Alex's week got really, really simple, and in other ways, that's just, like, not what we do as a community, and so we probably can't have church together, right? It doesn't mean that I don't like them. It doesn't mean that we can't be in relationship together and even talk about issues of faith together, but there's another kind of boundary that shows up in that way. So there's going to be differences that cause me to draw boundaries in different ways. Sometimes we're just going to disagree. It may shock you that Alex and I disagree about something and can still do church together, and that's okay. It doesn't mean one of us is going to hell. Alex. <laughs> See, the trouble with Protestants is that we're so good at protesting, right? Membership, communion, baptisms, chair colors, church government, intersections of church and culture, intersections of church and politics. We've got to be humble, wise and discerning and keep the gospel prime and let everything else fall into its right, rightful place. There are hills worth dying on, but there shouldn't be very many of those. Now, there's a risk in that. See, one risk is that I hold on to everything so tightly and confidently that I could only possibly work worship at a church of me. And I had a buddy that we were in ministry together and we were talking about, you know, oh man, if we could just plant a church that was like everything that we loved about church and we realized even our wives wouldn't come. Like it would just be <laughs> he and I on a Sunday morning having church because we're holding on to too many things too confidently and too tightly. We're lacking in humility, wisdom, and discernment. There's the opposite risk that we're so affable that we're willing to just let the gospel be watered down and be minimized. So we gotta, we gotta watch out for both of those. There are difference to, differences to wrestle with in relationship, and there are going to be boundaries that happen when we disagree, depending on the, on the severity and content of those disagreements. And we're not good at this, let me just acknowledge. We don't tend to be good at this. Uh, so let's watch out for our arrogance and our affability, that we can keep those in check. Humble, wise, and discerning. I'm going to hang on that this morning. Humble, wise, and discerning. Make sure you're hanging on to those three words. All right. Next question, question four. I'm going to have to move fast. Who is the greatest false teacher we should have to worry about today? Right? And all the elders are like, buckle up. Turn off my email. Some of you probably like have somebody that comes to mind, right? Here's what I would suggest. It's probably you. It's probably that person that like looks back at you when you're shaving in the mirror, right? Um, 
Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. The heart is deceitful above all things. The worst possible advice that we give to college students that we do all the time is, oh, follow your heart. <laughs> oh my gosh, the heart is deceitful. The heart is deceitful above all things. Um, here, I'm gonna out some of you. How many of you remember the, the 1964 presidential election? <laughs> it's like, well, yeah. Okay, so uh, I don't, let me just say, you know, I've read about it, but, uh, you know, some of you remember firsthand. Uh, Barry Goldwater was running for president, and do you remember what his slogan was? Anybody remember what his campaign slogan was? You know in your heart he's right. And the people that didn't like him would say, well, we know in our guts he's nuts. And that was kind of how that went. Um, the heart is deceitful above all things. Don't trust your heart. Don't trust your heart. When you read something or hear something uncomfortable, which we're going to get to, your heart is going to be like hollering at your mind, to your brain, like, hey, rationalize our way out of this. Come up with a logical justification for why I don't have to worry about this. That's how our heart works. And your brain is like, okay, and it does it, and it's awesome. And we think we're logical and rational and have these great arguments. But at the end of the day, the heart is deceitful. You hear something or read something that pushes your fear button. You start looking for rationalizations, justifications, and scapegoats. Humble, wise, and discerning, right? Humble, wise, and discerning. Okay, last question from this first chunk. Who is Second Peter talking about? We have the disadvantage that he didn't say, this is who I'm talking about. Have you noticed this in Scripture? Like, there are so many times where, like, just a couple of sentences would have saved so much grief over the next couple thousand years. Like if Paul had just said about baptism, listen, you know, all the way under, and they have to be eight. Like, <laughs> okay, awesome. But it's as if God wanted us to have to wrestle with each other a little harder over these things, right? Um, so this is a case where Peter is writing to somebody about somebody, and it's maybe not super clear to us who that is 2,000 years later. Um, but I think there are clues. And so I'm going to sort of wander out on a limb and see what we can glean from these clues because I think it helps us understand the next section of the passage a little better. Okay, so uh, as you read through the New Testament, you're gonna find all these letters uh, that, uh, that people who knew Jesus, who had met Jesus, are writing to all of these new churches. And uh, they don't have a Bible in these new churches. They have... Um, the, the, the churches that are predominantly Jewish have the Jewish scriptures, right? And, and then some nice stories about Jesus that they picked up. Maybe they have some scraps of the book of Mark, right? Like they don't have like this Bible like you have in your lap. Hopefully you still have it in your lap. Okay, so um, then we have the non-Jewish new Christians who don't even know the Jewish scriptures, Right? And they're starting to pick it apart and be like, oh my gosh, this all points to this Jesus guy that I think is awesome. And they're trying to figure this thing out and the Jewish people think that the non-Jewish people are doing violence to the text and like there's all of this conflict around there. So, um, so that's who these people are in these early churches and they're trying to figure all of this out. And the writers are, are warning these, these churches, these young Christians, these new Christians of really there's kind of like three big umbrellas, three big groups that are teaching stuff that is contrary to the gospel. 
And they're the Judaizers, the Gnostics, and the Epicureans. Like these are kind of our big three, right? There are a lot of ways to get this wrong, but, but these are our sort of big three umbrellas. Um, I'm gonna zero in on the Epicureans. Now, I'm not a philosophy scholar, but Epicurus lived around 300-ish BC, uh, and, and this is what his followers really sort of generally believed. Maximize pleasure, but moderate it enough to avoid any ill effects. If there's some cosmic divine being, it can't be bothered with judging every action of man as good or bad, much less all of humanity. Jesus, then, was a good teacher, but not God, because of what we just talked about, not resurrected and not returning. You see the gospel begin to be eroded here. Thus, there's no authority to Scripture. It's just some good sayings to help you be a good person. Does this sound at all familiar to you? So that's going to be really helpful as we move forward now. Because now Peter says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me tell you three stories that you know. Let me remind you of three stories that you know. The first story, here we are at part two. We have three stories. The first story is the story of fallen angels, where in verse four, he talks about angels who sinned, and he threw them into hell in gloomy pits of darkness, where they are being held until the day of judgment. So he has, he has judged them by sending them until the day of full judgment, right? So there's a couple of layers there in terms of judgment to pick apart. This is a really weird story to us. Maybe it's not to you. This is a really weird story to me because we get little hints of these stories, but we, we, we don't have a super awesome tight picture of it today. Uh, so let, let's... Let's see what we've got. We've got, um, we've got these texts. Go ahead and pull it up, if you would. We have a little bit of Genesis 6, 1 through 4, a little, uh, a little bit of Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, and those are kind of poetic. And we get a little line in Matthew 25 about, um, about God casting the demons down. Uh, and we get uh, Revelation, the story of the, of the dragon, which, if you haven't read, is like crazy, uh, super awesome. Uh, but that came later. Peter was written first before Revelation, so he didn't have that. And then there was this book of Enoch. Now, let me be really, really clear. The book of Enoch is not a biblical text, right? But this was a story that the Jews of the day would have known. And we think these are probably Jewish listeners who are listening to this letter being read because Peter... He was in charge of the Jewish churches, and Paul was in charge of the non-Jewish churches, right? And so, so we, can, we, can, we can guess that most of these listeners are Jewish and know the Jewish traditions, right? And this book of Enoch would have been really well known by them. Uh, and so when, when Peter refers to uh, this story, they probably know this story from the book of Enoch. And in the same way that, that if I were to say... Um, Frodo's little ring of power. You know how that went and how that's like sin and sort of consumes you, right? You're all nodding your head. You know. It's not scripture, right? It's not the Bible. It's an allegorical story about good and evil. And, and likewise, 
the Jews of the day would have recognized this story. Um, and so here, here's the gist of it. What we can sort of ferret out uh, from these texts is that there's a rebellion in heaven and Lucifer, a.k.a. Satan, the devil, the accuser, the adversary, the enemy, the deceiver, the chief and most beautiful of the angels who was assigned to be one of the guardians of the Garden of Eden, which is the protector of God's most sacred creation. Like, this guy is close to God and what he's doing. Leads a bunch of angels in rebellion to God. And God has to respond. And he casts them away, he casts them down into the pit or into hell or into the fires. Like in different texts sort of refer to this in different ways. So that's that story. The second story the flood, and this happened, and, and actually, go ahead and bring that last, uh, that last slide up that shows you the text. So I, I put all these up here because uh, you should go read these and know about them, even if you don't get to the book of Enoch. To, to, to like understand this part of the story, you're going to have to go like dig through these, these texts. So if you want to like shoot pictures of slides along the way so that you have a reference later, um, you should do that. All right, now moving on. Story number two, the flood. This happens in Genesis 6 through 9. We probably know this story. You probably know the silly little song that we teach children, which I think is crazy in retrospect that we teach children silly little songs about genocide, right? Like this is, if this isn't offensive to you in some way, like you haven't been hanging around our culture for 400 years. Okay, so God comes to Noah. The world is evil. I need you to build a boat. Makes sense, right? We're gonna build a boat. Uh, ask him to build an ark. You know about Noah and the ark. Noah has to figure out, like, what is this boat you're talking about? And he says, I want you to put the animals in. We bring all the animals in. It rains for 40 days, and everybody except Noah and his family are wiped out on the face of the earth. That's our second story. If you had any notion we were having lunch together, this is where it begins to, like, maybe not. Maybe not. Our third story Sodom and Gomorrah. This is from Genesis 18 and 19. Sodom and Gomorrah. We read this as the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, but Peter is going to make the case for us that this is about the rescue of Lot, which sort of like causes us to maybe see the story a little bit differently. All right, so this one is interesting. Three travelers come to Abraham. Apparently, one of them is God in the flesh because he refers to him in our Bibles as the Lord, all caps. And when we see the Lord in all caps, that, that, that usually is, is a translation of Yahweh, the name of God, right? He, God in the flesh. And then, you know, theologians want to know, well, if this was actually God, doesn't that mean that you would die because you can't look on God? So is this Jesus? Because Jesus was there at creation and all the way through this thing and has his, has his hand in, in all of this. Uh, so that's an interesting sort of rabbit hole to go down uh, that I'm not going to go down. But maybe your interest is piqued enough to go read the story. Okay, so he appears to God, and he's got a couple angels with him. Tells Abraham and Sarah, who are very old, that they're going to have a son, which is a different story for a different day. And then God says to the angels, should we tell Abraham what, we're going, what I'm going to do in Sodom and Gomorrah? And Abraham immediately responds, because Abraham knows that Sodom and Gomorrah are horribly violent, evil places. And his nephew Lot 
lives in Sodom. So when God says, should we tell him what we're going to do? Abraham immediately knows, I know what you're going to do. Like, this is, this is clear. And he says, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the earth do right? Man, can you imagine saying that to God? All right. They have this whole sort of back and forth. What about 45 people? What about 40 people? It's like a negotiation. What about 30 people? Okay, if there's 30 people, I won't destroy the city. Well, maybe there's 10 people, right? So there's this whole sort of back and forth of negotiations. And so finally, God sends the two angels to Lot. They walk into the town. Lot sees them, invites them to his house because he knows that for them to stay in the town square is very, very, very dangerous because this is an evil, horrible, violent place. He brings them in, stay in his house. A mob forms of men who wish to do unspeakable things to these foreigners who have come to their town. These angels strike them blind and they escape with Lot and his family. And they are commanded not to look back. And Lot's wife looks back and she's turned into a pillar pillar of salt. Those are our three stories. Yay. So what do we look for in these three stories? Remember the Epicureans. Sounds like a football movie. Remember the Epicureans. Number one, there's a degree of evil which requires God to act, to judge and sentence immediately in order to keep his creation moving along his plan to reconcile all things to him. There's a degree of evil which forces God to act. Evil can reach a sufficient fever pitch in a community that he must cut out the cancer. From what we can glean of the story of the fallen angels, this is a situation where where the evil is so poignant and the destruction destruction that they can can rot uh, forces God to respond immediately. And Peter tells us that they are held in chains until judgment day. When we look at the flood, the Lord... Uh, Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw how great and wicked the, <laughs> the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And he says in verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. When we look at Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 20, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous. In Genesis 15, uh, there's another little story uh, where God makes this covenant with Abraham and, and he tells him his, his descendants will return to the promised land in the fourth generation. But you can't go in yet because the iniquities of the Amorites who lived in this land is not yet complete. God was waiting. He was patient. He was giving them time. But there's a point at which God will have to act. There's a point that the evil 
comes to such fruition and is so all-consuming that God has to act. All right, number two, lesson for us from these three stories. God rescues those who turn. What's remarkable to us as post-enlightenment Christians is swift judgment and death. What's actually remarkable is just how long God will withhold his judgment and say, if you would just turn. God looks to Noah. Noah wasn't perfect or sinless, but he's someone who seeks God and speaks for God and seeks God's righteousness. In Genesis uh, 6, verse 9, talking about Noah, he says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. And so he was rescued. We also see that God rescues Lot. If you look at verse 7 of, our, of 2 Peter, excuse me, verse, yeah, here it is, verse 7. But God also rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. Yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. And so I, I want to I point out the, the rescue of Lot, but the story of Lot's wife is a little bit problematic for us, right? Because he brings... Lot's wife out of the city and says, don't look back. And she looks back and she's turned into a pillar of salt. And we had a good, lively, spirited debate at the kitchen island about why that is. Bible says, Mark says, here's what I think. You ever, you ever um, parents in the room, you have, a, you have a home. You guys just moved. You have a home. It was your first home. Your children were born there. And as you drive away, you stop and look back. Like, this is home, this is, this is a chapter of my life, this is, there's a certain longing, there's a certain, uh, there's a certain uh, loss that you feel for that home. And I think that was Lot's wife. She looked back at a place that was so horribly wrought with evil and violence and was gonna miss it. As opposed to what Second Peter says about Lot. What Second Peter says about Lot is, that he was, in verse, uh, in verse 7, he was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. Those are very different perspectives. So, if you think something else about Lot's wife, we can disagree and still have a seat at each other's table, I hope. All right, over and over, throughout the Old Testament, God warns the nation of Israel that judgment is coming. But if they will just turn... So what we're going to see over and over is the patience of God with our evil ways. And if you find genocide offensive, and I think you should find genocide offensive, consider this statement. Uh, theologian N.T. Wright writes this, Somehow, in a way we are inclined to find offensive, God has to get his, his boots muddy and, it seems, to get his hands bloody to put the world back to rights. If we declare, as many have done, that we would rather it were not so, we faced a counter question. Just which bit of dry, clean ground are we standing on that we should pronounce on the matter with any such certainty? 
I don't have a lot of clean, dry ground to stand on. Okay, here's a third thing that I want to take from these three stories. And this one is, is hard, and I don't have a lot of time to unpack this, but, but hang with me here. Judgment, sentencing, that's what that means, sentencing to death is God's. It's above my pay grade. That's not my job. My job is mercy. My job is prayer. My job is love. But if you look at our history, we have a, we have a long history of jump, jumping to the judgment seat and wanting to pronounce on other people's sin. Humility, wisdom, and discernment is what I would point you back to in that case. And some of you are saying, yeah, but sin, and you have to be able to call it and name it. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about judgment. Judgment of someone else's soul. That's God's. That's not mine. Part three. Evil, mercy, and justice. I want to visit another story. If you look at Matthew 22. You can flip over if you like, because we're going we're gonna to go through this together. Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. This is a parable that Jesus tells. The kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a king who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to notify those who were invited, but they all refused to come. So he sent other servants to tell them, the feast has been prepared. The bulls and fattened cattle have been killed and everything is ready. Come to the banquet. But the guests he had invited ignored them and went their own way. One to his farm, another to his business. Others seized his messengers and insulted them and killed them. The king was furious and he sent out his army to destroy the murderers and burn their town. And he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready and the guests I invited aren't worthy of the honor. Now go out to the street corners and invite everyone you see. So the servants brought in everyone they could find, good and bad alike, and the banquet hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to meet the guests, he noticed a man who wasn't wearing the proper clothes for a wedding. Friend, he asked, how is it that you are here without wedding clothes? But the man had no reply. Then the king said to his aides, bind his hands and feet and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. And, and some people take that last line, and we want to talk about like elect and predestination and those things, and that's not what I want to focus on today, because uh, I think that's complicated and requires a couple hours of our time to unpack. But there is something really, really pertinent in this story for us today. First of all, the farmer and the businessmen, these are landowners, right? These are the landowners, these are the property owners. In the Bible, the only people who were given property by God were the, were the nation of, of Israel and Adam and Eve, right? They were given the garden. So, so Jesus is being really explicit here about uh, kind of ancient, uh, the ancient Jews that he came to and there was the law and, and all of that went bad. And so then, then he sends his, his, uh, his servants out to the street corners, literally the crossroads. Every city had a crossroads. It was like how you got in and out of the city. Everybody went through there. Um, and they're, so they're going down to the crossroads. And I think of the old blues tunes. If you're a blues music fan, I went down to the crossroads. Yeah. Fell down on my knees. 
which is interesting to go listen to that song now in light of the crossroads here. Something for your afternoon. Halftime, maybe. These are the non-landowners, a.k.a. the Gentiles. This is everybody else, right? And they're all brought here to this feast. Now, what the Jewish listeners of Jesus' parable would have known is nobody goes into a king's wedding feast without wedding clothes. Nobody. Right? This is a big deal. This is about honor. You honor the king. right? You have to have these wedding clothes. And we know that they all have them because there was the one guy that didn't, right? So that we can infer then that probably everybody else did have their wedding clothes. But they were poor. They couldn't afford wedding clothes to go to a king's feast. And they didn't have time. They were rounded up and brought to this feast. So how is it that they had wedding clothes? Well, here's how they had wedding clothes. The king, at his own expense, clothed them. We only get to come to the king's party if we allow him to clothe us. We have to acknowledge that our righteousness, our rightness, is severely lacking. We have to allow him to clothe us in his righteousness at his expense. But I'm a good person. How many of you said that? You ever say that? But I'm a good person. You ever say that? You ever hear it? Like, oh, I'm not really worried about all this religious stuff because I'm a good person. There are bad people out there we all have our list, right? I have my list. You have your list. Some of these are in your list. The politicians, the professors, the scientists, the conspiracy theorists, the Democrats, the Republicans, the police, my boss, my spouse, my kids, my parents, whoever you like to complain about, that's on your list, right? But I'm a good person. And this is where the conversation gets difficult. Theologian Tim Keller, um, one of my favorites, says that what keeps most of us church people from really being changed by the gospel and what keeps us really from God is not our sin. It's our damnable good deeds. Because if I give a little bit to charity and I volunteer a little bit and I'm nice to people, then I say, but I'm a good person. As long as you think you're a good person, as long as you think you're standing ankle deep in a puddle of sin, and that Jesus wandering out into your little puddle is a really nice thing. As long as you think you're a good person, you can't grasp mercy. You can't grasp grace. You can't grasp forgiveness. You're trying to attend the wedding feast clothed in your own righteousness. Maybe, and this is most of us, like most of us think like, I'm a good person, I'm pretty good, I'm right about most things, but I need a Jesus cummerbund. Right? Maybe, ladies, you got a nice dress on, but, you know, I could really use a Jesus scarf to really put this over the top, right? Nobody wants to think this way. My friend Ed comes on, on Friday mornings to the men's group. He doesn't want to look at his great-grandchildren and be like, oh, you evil little cretins, right? That's not how we want to think. But the truth is, I was dead in my sin. I wasn't standing in a puddle. I was drowning in my evil and deserving of death, and Jesus came to me. 
I was wrapped up in chains, I swim with the fishes, my head had slipped below the surface, the last breath was out of me, and Jesus came to me. As long as you think you're a good person, you don't get that. And as long as you think you're a good person and you don't get that, your life is not going to be changed by the gospel. You're never going to get the power of the gospel. You're going to be constantly grabbing for socially engineered behavioral change. And nowhere in the Bible does it say, let's all pursue socially engineered behavioral change. And when you get that, that's going to change how you parent, if you're a parent, because you understand, oh, I've been spending all this time trying to socially engineer behavioral change in my kid, Ethan. (laughs) And it doesn't work. It doesn't work because the heart is deceitful. Because way down deep inside, all of our sin is a manifestation of our evil. And we don't like to think about that. We don't like to talk about that. We don't want to talk about people we love like that. Because it's hard, but it's true. Charles Spurgeon once said, you only want beggars at your feast. Think about that. See those commoners? Went down to the crossroads, right? The commoners that come. Um, They weren't complaining to the wait staff. They weren't asking the cook to put their steak back on for just another minute. Asparagus is just a little bit over-seasoned, don't you think? Right? No, they're like, oh my gosh, another bottle of wine. This is amazing. There's another turkey coming in. This is awesome. Where's all this food coming from? I've never seen anything like this. Someone who fully recognizes that they are marinated, basted, slow-roasted, hickory-smoked, and evil, will respond to forgiveness and grace with overwhelming gratitude, worship, generosity, and grace towards their fellow sinners. Is that you? Maybe on my best day. Maybe a little. So I'm in it with you. Okay, let me just acknowledge that. Like, oh my gosh, this guy's up here talking. I'm in it with you. This is hard. But here's the trick with this, is that the Bible tells us that this isn't about shame. Right? We need to be clear-eyed about who we are so that we can be clear-eyed about what we're saved from so that we can fully get this gospel of grace. But nowhere in that is shame. When these people come into the feast and they put on God's clothes, like none of them were sitting there going, oh my gosh, I'm so ashamed of the clothes I showed up in before God clothed me in righteousness, right? There is an acknowledgement that we all showed up deficient to this thing. None of us are a good person. Like, that's a given. That's not shame. That's not condemnation. That's just being clear-eyed about who we are and where we come from. And it's being clear-eyed about who God is and where he wants to take us. And we gotta have both. We really like to talk about grace, but we've got to understand both or we diminish that grace to something that's just really nice. When I was a kid, pastor of my church uh, said once, he, he prayed to God to reveal his sin to him. A few weeks later, he came back and said, don't ever pray that prayer. Don't ever, ever pray that prayer. Because every few minutes, it was like, boom, boom. Like, there it is. Every time, every time I open my mouth, every time I look at somebody and have a thought, every time, every time, every time. And you, and, and you know what follows that? Once you've been through that experience, 
Humility, wisdom, discernment, overflowing with worship, gratitude, graciousness, and mercy towards your fellow sinners. Is that us? I really, really want it to be us. I really want it to be me. I really want it to be you. But man, we gotta be clear-eyed about that. So let me pray for you. The band's gonna come back. And we'll worship together. Uh, God, you give us hard things. I pray that we can be a people who will hear hard things. I pray that we will be a people who will be changed by hard things. I pray that we will be a people who can move beyond shame and understand the power of the gospel and be changed by it. God, help us to be sickened by evil when it's around us and help us to respond with love, with mercy. That's, tar- that's really hard, God. Uh, we aren't good at that, but you're good at that. And so we just ask you to come and, and speak into uh, our lives, speak into our community, um, our Bible studies, our life groups. Help us to challenge who we are and what we are, and to do so in a clear-eyed way that we can be uh, the church that you want us to be, that we can be uh, the followers of you that you want us to be. So God, as we continue to worship, I pray that uh, you will help us just to understand why it is we worship. Help us with that, that gratitude muscle. Help us to be in awe of you again because we were not standing in a puddle, God. We were drowning. We were dead in our sin. 